Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this chance that we have to turn to your word from the book of Colossians once again. And thank you for uh, the privilege we have of uh, speaking your word openly and gathering openly to hear it. And uh, I pray that it would do its work, your work, among us this morning. Lord, I uh, acknowledge and thank you that there is nothing interesting or noteworthy about this message in any regard, except for what it says that is true about your son, Jesus Christ. So I pray that um, uh, the truth about him would shine clearly through the words that I say this morning, and uh, that it would enter into our ears and into our hearts, and uh, that it would drive us to uh, serve you and love you more and more. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Now that we are in the new year, we are in awards season for the entertainment industry. Uh, This past week, we had the Critics' Choice Award and the People's Choice Awards, implying that critics are not people. And uh, we also have the uh, Oscar nominations this past week. And then those, there will be more. There will be more. And it's been observed that uh, we've sort of run out of new ideas. Uh, It's becoming more and more likely that the shows and movies that are successful are going to be... Uh, sequels and remakes, spin-offs and rip-offs and repackagings of existing storylines. And we like seeing the same stories and themes revised, updated, repeated, and uh, reinforced. So you turn on the TV and, oh, look, Friends is on. Which one is it? Well, it's the one where Ross and Rachel can't figure out if they're soulmates or not. Uh, you turn to a different channel and it's House Hunters. Which, which one is it? Well, it's the one where there's a couple and they're hunting for a house but they can't find anything they like in their price range, right? And so maybe you flip over to a sports channel and there's a football game on and you know that they're going to spend the whole time squandering opportunities and then try to get three scores in the last three minutes. That's the nature of the game. You could try to watch a movie and you say, oh, which movie should we watch? Well, let's watch the one where there's a girl and two guys and it's kind of a love triangle thing, but she clearly has a preference for one over the other and the power of their unconventional love serves to light the spark that overthrows the oppressive status quo. Well, which movie is that? You're going to have to be more specific because that describes Hunger Games and Twilight and Princess Bride and Jane Eyre. I read Jane Eyre over Christmas and it turns out I didn't need to because I'd already seen it and read it. Charlotte Bronte wasn't being original. She was just ripping off all the others. It's the same story, whether it's Englishmen or vampires or the six-fingered man or kids killing other kids. It's the core of the story is uh, courage and love and overcoming obstacles and special effects and other things that sell tickets. That was on my mind this week as I was preparing. You may have noticed that uh, each of my sermons pretty much have the same point, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did and how our only chance of our only hope of life and happiness is in him. And that's the only sermon I've got because the Bible is one story. God is gathering for himself a people through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we've got a thousand chapters of the whys and the wherefores and the whos and the whens and plenty of stuff to keep us busy. But whether we're talking about Christmas movies or Philippians or going even further back to uh, six weeks last summer on a home renovation TV show, it doesn't take us long before we're talking about how Christ is God, sent from the Father, died on the cross, rose from the grave, coming again, revealed in Scripture, glorified in his church, and how we should respond to those truths in our lives. So, guess what? Colossians, 
it's no different. Uh, it's the same truths about Jesus, but applied into the local context of the unique problems facing the Colossians church. And this letter was written by Paul and preserved by the Holy Spirit and delivered to us as scripture so we can apply it to our lives as well. The big idea from our text this morning is that Christ is supreme, so continue in him. We're going to spend two weeks on verses 9 through 23, this week and next week, because that is one section that goes together. Rather than split it down the middle, this week we're going to focus on how this portion of Paul's letter serves to get him from his greeting into the arguments that he's going to make in chapter 2. How does this portion of the letter work in the picture of the whole letter? Next week we're going to uh, look at how these verses, 9 through 23, interact with other scriptures in uh, other parts of the Bible to give us the whole complete package of Christian life and doctrine. Uh, you know, why are the Jehovah's Witnesses so fascinated with verse 15? What, if anything, does verse 9 have to say about finding God's will for our lives? That's going to be next week. This week it's about the church in Colossae. What problems were they facing that caused Paul to actually write this letter? Why is there a letter to the Colossians and what lessons are there for us? We're going to be spending 10 weeks in this letter, so uh, it would be good if you were familiar with it to be able to get the most out of it and why it was written in the first place. First place. Last week, Pastor Riddle recommended that we uh, read Colossians to the point of familiarity. There's not even 100 verses. You read it every day or two for the next few weeks, and you'll become quite familiar with what's going on in this book and the flow of what Paul is trying to accomplish. And once you get it in your head, then you can go to the book of Ephesians and notice how amazingly similar these two letters are. Ephesians and Colossians are really letters that go together, written at the same time by the same person, Paul, and delivered by the same person to these two cities. And if you read Ephesians, knowing Colossians, you'll notice all these similar themes and ideas, even uh, expressions and turns of phrase, but you'll also notice one glaring difference, not just that Ephesians is longer and better organized, but that in Ephesians, Paul is tripping over himself, making references to the Holy Spirit. He can't get anywhere in Ephesians without running across the Spirit and what he is doing. But in Colossians, no Spirit. There's one reference to the Holy Spirit in all of Colossians, and it was last week. And you probably didn't notice it because it wasn't central to the text last week. Ephesus and Colossae were relatively close to each other. These two cities were 120 miles apart, which is a long way in the ancient world. But it was a straight shot down the river, and there was a good highway. So there was lots of traffic that went back and forth between these two cities. But while Ephesus was dominated by the Temple of Artemis, ancient wonder of the, well, the wonder of the ancient world, and, uh, you know, great as Artemis of the Ephesians that Paul ran into. Artemis was the only game in town in Ephesus before Paul showed up. Colossae is much more of a melting pot. It's a crossroads city like Indianapolis, and it apparently had a vibrant spiritual climate. Uh, there was a mix of people and influences there that created a local religion that was a stew of local tribal elements and Jewish influences and Greek influences as well. And each of those was having a negative impact on the church in Colossae. People were being pressured to adopt strict rules regarding diet and holiday festivals, and that came from the Jewish influences. There was also an element of uh, religious philosophy that was running around, and that came from the Greeks. And especially for our text this morning, there was a kind of 
primitive folk religion emphasis on spiritual activity, spiritual power, uh, the work and power and influence of spiritual creatures other than Christ. And that's what was in the air in Colossae, and that was uh, where this church had been planted and was trying to grow and thrive. So Paul was writing to a community that had uh, this fascination with spiritual activity, spiritual messages, and spiritual insight. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he was able to write a very Trinitarian letter, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But when he wrote to the Colossians, he focused exclusively on Christ, the supremacy and preeminence of Christ, choosing not to draw attention to the Holy Spirit's active role in glorifying Christ. And I don't think that was a distortion on his part, because the Holy Spirit always wants to um, make Christ known and apply the work of Christ to believers and always to turn the spotlight on to Christ. I wanted to have a good illustration of this. And uh, so we worked hard at thinking through something from marriage or sports or parenting to help us understand how you can, if you tell somebody to do something that's a good thing, you run the risk of them going completely overboard on that and um, messing everything up. And I think, I didn't run this illustration by Aaron, but I think it's going to work. Imagine that you have um, a young guy and he wants to be a young gentleman. So, Heinzman, Pafford, pay attention. And uh, he develops an interest in a uh, lovely young lady, and it seems that the young lady's got an interest in him, too. And so he's heard this advice, tell her she looks nice. And that's good. It's good. A young lady, any lady, likes to know that all her efforts towards making herself presentable are appreciated. Um, so you start with, you know, the hair and the earrings and the fingernails and the shoes, and uh, you start at the extremities, and as you get closer and closer to marriage, you can work your way towards the center. Uh, but there's a risk that the young gentleman might not realize. Compliment her appearance too much, too often, and she might get the idea that you only care about her looks. And you're not as interested in her skills and abilities, her thoughts and feelings, and her hopes and dreams, that you're more just interested in her appearance. You could ruin everything by complimenting her too narrowly. And I'm speculating, but I'm guessing confidently that this is what Paul wanted to avoid in this letter. He didn't want the Colossians to short-circuit the work of the Holy Spirit in, uh, by having them focus on the Spirit himself instead of on Christ. That would be focusing on the means instead of the end, and the Holy Spirit's goal is always to magnify Christ. And that is the theme that Paul knows that he needs to focus on. Before he tackles the problems that are facing the church in chapter 2, he reviews the foundation in chapter 1. Before he tells them what to watch out for, he reminds them of things that they should already know are true, but it's always good to be reminded of. Because the best way to expose a lie is to know the truth. How do the folks at the Treasury Department safeguard our currency against counterfeit? Okay, when they're not dreaming up trillion-dollar coins, then they are studying not fakes, but they're studying the authentic dollar bill. Because the more you know the feel and touch and look of a real dollar bill, the more obvious it will be when you see a fake. Because the best way to expose a fake is to know the truth. And the truth that Paul is going to hammer home in chapter 1, is that Christ is supreme. So continue in him. Don't be moved. Don't give up. Don't lose faith. If you're a fan of alliteration, you can put it like this. Christ is sovereign in that he has complete authority in his domain. 
and he is supreme because his domain is over all things that exist anywhere ever. Christ is sufficient because all we need for life and godliness can be found in him. And Christ is satisfying because he leads us into the joyful relationship with the Father that we were created to enjoy. Last week, we did verses 1 through 8. Pastor Riddle showed us Paul's greeting. Paul thanks God for the church in Colossae because he's heard about their faith and he has heard about the love that they have for each other, which Jesus said would be the primary distinguishing mark of his people. The gospel is at work, growing and bearing fruit, and Paul can see it because he can see the special love that they have for each other. But none of that is unique to Colossae. That should should be, should be true of all churches everywhere. And as Paul continues, he's going to transition into talking more directly into the Colossian situation. What does he want for this church in the future, particularly in light of the spiritual climate in the city? So let's look and see. We're going to start in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. It'll be on the screen, but you would also benefit from having it in front of you on the page. By the way, I noticed that we've got a bunch of Bibles in the, um, the, the Bible trays under the seats. I don't know when those showed up, uh, and I don't know who do we have to thank for it. Jeff, okay. Um, we apparently got the bargain blend at Christian Book Distributors because I pulled out seven of them, and I found five different versions of the Bible. And they're all perfectly fine and good. Um, Steve, you might have a King James there. I'm sorry. But um, whatever you've got in front of you, pull it out and follow along starting in chapter 1, verse 9. There's going to be one request, one core request that Paul asks God for which will have a couple of different elements. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul wants them to bear fruit, to grow, to please God by their actions. They will need spiritual wisdom and understanding for this, knowing God more and more. And also they will need, in verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That is a lot of power. What do they need all that power for? For all endurance and patience with joy. So this is a long-term project. Paul wants them to be continuing the cycle of growth, of knowing and pleasing God, and receiving strength from God for endurance and patience. Not giving up when it gets hard, not giving in when another path seems easier, and not being distracted by other rival claims for their worship. For them, that would have been the local boutique blend of spiritual potpourri. For us, it's more likely to be a, a secular religion of individual authenticity, be true to yourself relativism, or if you already have religious inclinations, you're probably just going to want to try to be a good person because it's the right thing to do. But Paul is praying that these followers of Christ would be strengthened by God and endowed with spiritual wisdom so that they could grow in Christ and continue in him. He's praying that God would do that. And at the end of the passage, in verse 23, he's going to remind us that we have a part to play in that as well. Of course, it's not going to happen all by itself. And Paul reminds them that God has already gotten the ball rolling, continuing into verse 12. Uh, let's see. Endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What does that mean? Uh, well, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Okay, well, even his explanation doesn't make things that much more clear because the domain of darkness, right? Who saw that coming? Uh, well, he's going to clear it up in verse 21. But for now, the domain of darkness is the condition of slavery to sin. We are dead in sin. We are born into and in which we would remain if God had not redeemed us through Christ. So before Paul even talks about the culture infecting their church, he's reminding them of what God has done for his people and what the future can hold for them. Even though there are serious problems facing this church, Paul paints this beautiful picture of knowing and growing in God, patiently enduring and living a life of increasing victory and righteousness and joy in God. And the basis of that is not something that they have accomplished through their own effort, not some um, religious revelation that they've received from some other source uh, or some new strategy for living a fulfilled life. The basis of this is what God has done for them through the gospel and specifically through what Paul says in verse 13, his beloved son. Now, in verse 3, Paul has already identified God as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul calls Jesus God's beloved son to highlight the special and unique relationship between them. Paul is building up to the center point of this passage, the hinge of the whole text in 15 through 19. Here we have a series of factual statements about Jesus, his beloved son, that talk at the very highest level about who he is and what he's done. The verses that come after 15 through 19, 20 through 22, are actually mirror images of what come before in 12 through 14, what Christ has done for his people. So in the middle, you've got 15 through 19, who Christ is. And then on either side of that, bookends, 12, 13, 14, 20, 21, 22, what Christ has done for us, his people. So let's see what Paul has to say about Jesus. Start back in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that's a reference to spiritual beings, created beings, angels and demons, all things, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay, that is a rather dense paragraph, the point of which is to establish Christ's preeminence, his uh, first place, first rank, first importance, his supremacy, whatever your Bible says, his preeminence over all the physical creation, the universe, and all the spiritual creation, the angels and demons, all of them. He is before them and ahead of them because both in time and in priority. And this extends also to all of human creation, not just a part of the physical world because we are made in the image of God, but not purely a part of the spiritual world because here we are living in the flesh as well. And he is the head, the authority, the source of the church. Paul didn't just talk about what Jesus did. You know, here's the facts. Here's what happened like a reporter. Paul also talks about Jesus' nature, who he was, who he is. He opens verse 15 by saying that Jesus is the image 
of the invisible God. He's not just God's representative. He's not just God's beloved son, but he is that which makes the invisible God visible. If you want to see the Father, look to Jesus. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. That's what he told his disciples. And of course, he didn't just mean seeing with the eyes, but seeing and understanding that Jesus is not just from God. He's not just appointed and anointed by God, but he is God. Distinct and uh, dis- distinct from the Father, but the same in deity. Then in verse 19, we have a matching statement about Jesus' nature. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This goes far beyond the spirit coming upon a prophet or the spirit indwelling a believer. This is um, everything about God that makes him God. The full completeness of his divinity was in Jesus by his nature. Without that, verse 20 through 22 would not be possible. Continue. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, now Paul turns the corner and draws attention to the the Philippians, the Colossians, and us as well. And yeah, the Philippians as well, too. Um, And you, who once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him verse 20 god reconciles all things back to himself the word for reconcile means to accomplish a change jesus death on the cross accomplished a change in his relationship with these groups with all things for his people this was a reconciliation uh, into a restored relationship with god the father jesus made peace through his blood by making peace through forgiveness but the verse says all things and we'll see later in this letter that uh, jesus death on the cross also accomplished a change in the nature of his relationship to all the spiritual entities that had rebelled against him. Chapter 2 will say he triumphed over them by the cross. Okay, Jesus did not triumph over his church. He loved his church and rescued and redeemed and saved his church, his bride. But the uh, spiritual forces that rebelled against God, those were triumphed over by the cross. They are reconciled to him, not by love, not Christ and his bride, but by conquest, victor and vanquished. After World War II, we made peace with England and France because they were our allies and friends and our kin. We made peace with the Nazis in a very different way, by grinding them into dust. And um, Paul wants the Colossian church to know and remember that Christ is supreme over all spiritual forces, so they should continue in Christ. All spiritual life and growth is found in Christ. Uh, Like most pre-scientific cultures, people in the ancient world tried to explain the incomprehensible world around them through idols. So uh, the the water cycle and the weather and the crops and fertility each had their own deity that would be sacrificed to. And the enemy, being a crafty deceiver, took advantage of the ignorant and superstitious minds of the pagans. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that many of the idols which they worshipped had real, live, demonic power behind them. It's exactly what you'd expect 
a deceiver like Satan to do. And Paul's answer to the pre-scientific culture in Colossae was to say, hey, creation is governed by God because it was made by God. It was made by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus. He is sovereign and supreme over all other spiritual beings. So you don't need to be afraid of them. You don't need to sacrifice to them, and you don't need them to explain the physical world around you. Of course, we don't very often talk about demons controlling the weather anymore uh, because we know better now, not because we believe that there's a sovereign God who's in control of those things, but because through uh, the scientific method, we've been able to understand the forces that are at work behind earthquakes and storms and uh, stars and crops and disease and pretty much anything else that can be seen, touched or measured. And so in the modern world, of course, you'd expect the enemy to ease up on the blatant spiritual manipulation so that it would be easier for people to believe that there is no supernatural. There's no God at all. Fortunately, we have Paul in Colossians 1 saying to the modern age, you might be able to understand the physical creation, the physical universe, but it is, you must acknowledge that what is created has a creator and it's Jesus. You can measure out the gravity of the galaxies and the charge of the electron, but it is Jesus who is holding all things together because he made it and he sustains it. You know why the sky is blue, why water is wet and why the chicken crossed the road. But if you do not acknowledge that the earth and the sky and the animals were made for the glory of Christ, then you do not really understand anything at all. Now, don't hear me bashing science. Research and exploration is a great gift from God, and there's no better place to discover how the heavens declare the glory of God than the physics department at Purdue University. Now, what about us postmoderns who care nothing about the absoluteness of science and only care about what works for me as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, right? To us, Paul says that Jesus transcends all relativism because he really, truly, actually exists in and of himself, whether or not we choose to acknowledge his truthfulness or not. Colossians 1 is the ultimate rebuke to, well, it's true for you, but not for me. Christ is sovereign over all creation. And if you really want to live a life of purpose and meaning beyond uh, and significance, then you will follow him and live a life beyond your own mortal existence. We've called this series more than me because Jesus calls us and gives us the opportunity to transcend our own narrow lives and participate in something meaningful in this life and in the life to come. Now that's all in verse 20. You might not have seen it there, but I swear it's all there. Christ has reconciled to himself all things, making peace for his people. That is the peace of restored fellowship with God. Challenging and difficult and long, but still full of joy with the hope and expectation of eternal bliss with God in heaven. But that doesn't happen simply by wishing it so. Back in verse 9 and 11, Paul prayed that the Colossians would grow in the knowledge of God and in fruitfulness, but he drops this warning here at the end in verse 23 that it doesn't just happen spontaneously. Just because you're in the congregation, in the room, in the church, and profess a belief in Jesus does not automatically mean that you are okay with God. Genuine faith is a faith that perseveres and endures and has patience to the end. Let's finish out our text. Uh, Let's see. You were once alienated. He is now reconciled, presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, 
not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Scattered throughout the New Testament are these seemingly potentially contradictory passages, and often they're side by side, like we have here in Colossians 1. On the one hand, you've got God who has saved his people in Christ. It is a completed, accomplished work, and it is done. Now, on the other hand, the believers, the followers, are responsible to continue in Christ and persevere to the end, lest they fall away and be lost. Obviously, the stakes are pretty high there. You don't want to end up on the wrong side of that and be confused in the slightest. When you have these warning passages, there's two positive outcomes that you'd like to achieve and two negative outcomes you definitely want to avoid. The first good outcome is for people who are in Christ and have confident assurance that they are in Christ. They know that they know that they are saved and in Christ. And they, when they read these passages, are challenged to persevere and be faithful and endure to the end. And they are comforted and encouraged by the work that God has accomplished already in their lives. Another good outcome would be for the person who is not in Christ to recognize and realize that they are in danger and they need to come to God and turn to Christ in faith and repentance. In both cases, the positive outcome is to drive people closer to Christ. On the other hand, consider a person, uh, these are the negative outcomes, consider a person who is in Christ but is weak and vulnerable in their faith. And the enemy has these warning passages and, and the enemy uses them to tempt them into doubting and disbelieving the work that Christ has done in them, throwing them into panic and despair, crippling their effectiveness and their growth. Or worst of all, somebody who is not in Christ but thinks they are. And they hear these passages and they say, I'm good. I said the sinner's prayer. I got baptized. I'm a member of the church. I volunteer. I tithe. I serve. I like all the status updates that just dare me to be ashamed of Jesus and not like them. So I'm good. I do the right things. Quit bugging me. I have nothing to worry about. Either way, the negative outcome serves to drive people away from Christ. So seeking to achieve the positive outcomes and avoid the landmines, what does Paul say? He presents the danger of not continuing, not remaining, not steady and stable, established and firm, the opposite of the patience and endurance that Paul prayed for earlier in the passage. He warns against being shifted, being moved, being altered. What could cause that to happen and what could prevent that from happening? How can we avoid the disaster of verse 23 and instead pursue what Paul prayed for in verses 9 through 11? First, remember what Christ has done for his people. In the book of Colossians, we have already seen from verse 5 that there is hope laid up for us in heaven. That Paul has prayed for us that we would have endurance and patience. In our text this morning, we saw that God has qualified, delivered, transferred, redeemed, forgiven, and reconciled his people. Assigning us a portion of his inheritance and making peace with us. As we go into chapter 2, we are filled in him. Our sinful flesh is spiritually circumcised. Jeff has that passage in a few weeks. Have fun with that one. And God has made us alive, canceled our debt, buried us and raised us in baptism and defeated our enemies. 
who are the enemies of the Christian? What is it that desires for us to be shifted away from our faith in Christ, the preeminent one? In chapter 2, Paul will deal with each of the three classic categories of the enemies of the Christian, the world and the flesh and the devil. Those weeks, we'll see that each of those enemies has already been defeated at the cross. They may still have some residual ongoing influence, but the battle is won and their doom is sure. Their power is broken. The world, the secular system that is opposed to Christ and hostile to him, filled with empty philosophies and vain deceit. Christ has overcome the world. The flesh. Our sinful nature that we were born with that enslaves us to sin and resides inside us in our very flesh. God has made us alive in Christ. He has cut off the sinful nature. We are raised in Christ and we are equipped to mortify, to put to death the deeds of the flesh that remain in us. And all of chapter 3 is given to us to help us in that fight. And our last great enemy, truly our first great enemy, the devil and all his spiritual enemies. They still exist, but they have already been defeated. Through the Christ, Jesus has reasserted his sovereignty over them. They have a degree of freedom, but they are bound by the restrictions that God has placed upon them. And they can do nothing outside the divinely ordained plan that God has established, even using the works of those who are opposed to him, to bring glory to himself and good to his people. So while God's people still have enemies, they have all been defeated by Christ's victory. We can still be tempted and we can still sin, but for those who are in Christ, there is always the ability to resist. And so we have these warning passages. Christ is supreme, so resist the devil and put to death the works of the flesh and be in the world, but not of the world. Do not be shifted. Continue, endure, be patient, have endurance, be steadfast. Ask for help. Pray what Paul prayed for yourself, for your family, for your small group, and for the whole church. Become familiar with what Christ has done. If you want to be able to tell somebody what Christ has done for them, it would be good to be familiar with what Christ has done for you. Maybe not all the big vocabulary words, but at least the concepts and the fancy words They'll come. They'll come in time. Lastly, Paul will tell us to be thankful at least once in every chapter of this book. Be thankful to God for who he is and what he has done on our behalf. It is hard to be tempted to abandon our Savior for inferior alternatives when we are thanking God for what he has done for us and in us and through us. So let's go to the Lord in thanksgiving. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have not remained invisible. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, even though we are sinners and born in a condition of slavery and hostility against you. Thank you that you revealed yourself through your word, slowly at first through the prophets and the law, and then suddenly and brilliantly through uh, the shining light of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection. Thank you that he lives again and intercedes on behalf of his people. Thank you that you have sent your spirit to give us spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we can know what you want of us, what is right and pleasing in your eyes, so that we can grow in you and so that we can endure and be patient to the end. And thank you that you give us 
and awareness, not just of our need, but the need of others to know you as well. And I pray that you will be uh, blessing these people with the, the desire and the willingness and the ability to speak to those people that they know about you, those who need to hear about you so badly. It's in the name of your great son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.